Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkinstor, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Today, we have a full schedule of great topics. You guessed it, more on Trump world indictments and motions, the court's ruling that DACA is illegal, and Hunter Biden's indictment on gun charges. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. And remember, go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies for the perfect gift for yourself or for a friend. Before we get into these heavy-duty subjects, I want to say we are all in New York together. We're going to be together all all day, and it's so perfect. So I want to just talk about our being together in one place live, even though we're currently in separate rooms recording this, we will soon be having dinner together. So what's your Start favorite thing about being together? Sing more, sing more. <laughs> <laughs> we're in New York today. We're all going to be a part of it. <laughs> so yeah, we're in town. And we're Kim's in name town for the show today is If I Can Make It Here, which is a great... <laughs> I'll make it, it anywhere. It's true. It, no, it's really, you know, it's always special. As our listeners know, we usually record uh, the podcast in our own separate corners of the country. And we don't often get an opportunity to all be face-to-face. So this is really special. We are recording the podcast from our individual hotel rooms um, not together, just for logistical reasons, it works out better. But it's fun to see, like in the background, I can see that you all have the exact same like <laughs> mural behind you that I have in my room, and the exact same lamp. Um, I, I assume we all have the same kind of room. Like Jill, you have the room with like the big fireplace as you come in, and then the, the oh, sitting what? room, and then the three, <laughs> the three small rooms. You guys all have that in your room. Hey, no. are you yes, pulling my leg? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a lovely, but, you know, New York-sized um, hotel room. Efficient, delightful. I think is the word Efficient. that we use go. here. I, I'm really looking forward to having dinner with all of you guys, though. I mean, the last time that we were together in person was May, right? Yes. Yeah. But the good news is we're going to be together again next Friday in Texas at Austin in the Texas Trip Fest. So if you're in that area, guys, come and see us in person. So we have reached the point with the multiple indictments and other legal developments around and involving Donald Trump and everyone in his circle, that it's almost impossible for us to go over every new detail in every new development each week, because that is all our podcast would be about. So we're going to try something a little different this week. We're going to pick, each of us is going to pick what we think the most consequential updates of the week are when it comes to legal news in Trump world and discuss them all. So we're going to give that a try. I will start. So this week, I think one of the most consequential things that happened is that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff uh, in the White House, his bid to remove his Georgia criminal charges from state court to federal court failed. 
And I think this is a big deal, not just for him, but also for Donald Trump and other people. I personally thought if anybody had anywhere close to a decent claim to try to remove the case to federal court, it might be Mark Meadows. Because Mark Meadows can say, look, I was just doing what my boss told me to do. It was part of my job. And the one basis for removing a case to federal court from state is if you are a federal official acting within the capacity of your job, in a nutshell. Well, the judge told Mark Meadows, well, wait a minute. No. Because first of all, Trying to uh, do what you're charged with, which is taking part in trying to overturn the results of an election, is never part of your job. But even if you thought it was, as a federal officer, there is something called the Hatch Act, which we've talked about here before, which prohibits anyone who holds federal office from doing campaign work on the job. You can't hold fundraisers in the White House, for example. You can't make fundraising calls from White House phones. Those things would violate the Hatch Act. So if you were doing something that was involving efforts around a campaign, that would not only not be a part of your job, it would be unlawful for you to be doing that. So using that as a basis to remove your case from state court to federal court is just a non-starter. I think that that is bad news for anybody, including Donald Trump, that was planning on using this similar approach. I want to hear what you guys think about that and also what you think the biggest development of the week was. What about you, Joe? Well, I I agree with you, except on one point, which is I never thought that that removal would be granted because... I never either. I said if anybody had a case for it, Mark Meadows' case would be the strongest because he was following orders, but I do not think that it was Excuse me, you've not heard of the Nuremberg defense? You cannot (laughs) say I was just following orders. You cannot do that. I'm sorry. You cannot commit a crime. I didn't say it was good, but I said if anybody's going to succeed, he has the best chance. That was all I said. Well, I'm going to follow up, although it was really hard to pick one one thing, because there are so many things that happened this week. But just to follow up on what you said, as a result of his doing this removal and it being denied, uh, that took away one of the things that was standing in the way of setting a trial date. And it also is because the judge decided not to allow Bonnie Willis to proceed with all the defendants on October 23rd. That meant that there would be no reason why he would have to continue his motion to prevent the trial from proceeding until the the, um, uh, removal was decided because he wouldn't be going to trial on October 23rd, which could be possibly before the appeals of his removal motion. Mm. It's important on its own, the decision not to allow her to try all 19 defendants on October 23rd is important because I think it might have been reversible error to force people to trial before they said they were ready. So that's important because you don't want to go through this trial and then have it reversed. But it's also important because it didn't. It, it's not balancing the difficulty for witnesses and prosecutors of trying consecutive or even concurrent cases and of the advantage that it gives to the last ones to be tried. So now we have a trial of at least two defendants proceeding on October 23rd because they demanded a 
uh, speedy trial, which in Georgia, it's a very weird speedy trial act, and had to start before the end of the next term, which was, I think, November 4th or 5th. So the jury has to be sworn. So they are starting on October 23rd to give time for that. And the judge has set very specific limitations on questions for the jury to make sure that they finish and don't drag it out so that the trial isn't started officially before the end of the trial term. So I think all of that fit together in a strategic way and is important. So what about what about you, Barb? What was the most consequential development this week in Trump world, in your view? Well, certainly what you've talked about is probably the most consequential. But I'll tell you one thing that I thought was interesting uh, that happened this week and important is the government turned over something like 1.2 million uh, documents in the uh, January 6th case. Um, and I think that just demonstrates that the case is moving forward. There were various batches of discovery that were turned over. And, you know, these are the kind of quiet things that happen in cases that, you know, maybe doesn't grab big headlines, but it means the case is advancing and it's moving forward. That has to happen first, discovery, which means the prosecution turns over all of the exhibits it's going to use, anything that is material to the defense, certainly anything that might be exculpatory, all of that gets turned over, and that's important because the defense has to be able to review that to then file motions to advance the next stage. And so I, I think it's just important to see that these cases are advancing and they're making progress, and uh, one hopes that they will be able to uh, make their March trial date by staying on track. So I, I thought it was it was just important that they're staying on track. And what about you, Joyce? You know, I think the most important thing that happened this week is actually something that didn't happen that I've been watching for for a long time. And it's in the Mar-a-Lago case where the government about a month ago, a little bit more than a month, filed a motion asking for a Garcia hearing. A Garcia hearing is what you ask for in the 11th Circuit if you think some of the lawyers might have a conflict of interest with their clients, and the special prosecutor thinks that that's the case here because some of the lawyers also represent, in addition to their clients who are defendants, other witnesses. And of course, it's tough for a lawyer to represent his client, the defendant, but to also vigorously cross-examine his other client, the the witness, when he's called to testify at trial. Um, Typically, a judge would respond to a request like that very quickly and schedule a hearing because one of two things has to happen. Either you have to put all the facts about the conflict on the record and have the the client defendant waive the conflict in open court or the, the defendant needs to get a new lawyer. But it's one of those two things or any conviction the government obtains is vulnerable on appeal. It could easily be reversed for ineffective assistance of counsel. Judge Cannon just continues to ignore it. There's been a series of briefs filed. The government has filed its final reply uh, over a week ago now, and she still has not ruled and ordered that a Garcia hearing be had. So I am watching that with great interest. This is, I think, indicative of my worst fear with her, which is that she can just not do things that have to be done that make the case vulnerable on appeal even if she lets in enough evidence for the government to convict. And I think the Mar-a-Lago case is in many ways the easiest one. It's the straight line forward with all the strong evidence of obstruction. So this really worries me. Joyce, do you think it's getting to time when Jack Smith might have to ask for her recusal because she's delaying so much? 
You know, I don't think I would do that here. I think what I would do, and it's maybe still a little bit too early, but I would file a mandamus petition ordering her to rule on the Garcia hearing, and I would give the court the opportunity to recuse her. So one thing that's happened this week is Donald Trump is talking. He's given interviews. So I know at the very least, I saw uh, excerpts of interviews that he gave with both uh, NBC's Kristen Welker, as well as Megyn Kelly for her podcast. Um, The fact that he is talking, he is facing dozens of charges under federal indictment, plus he has these civil cases How bad of an idea is it that he, as a defendant, is making public statement, guys? It gives me, it would make me nervous if I were his lawyer. Am I overreacting? No, you're not. I think the cringe factor here is terrible. But, you know, I, I don't think he's just talking. I think he's confessing. I mean, I hear him saying a lot of things that are just really damaging in the hands of prosecutors who make video clips and line them up. And of course, I don't think anyone expects him to testify at trial. But if he does, this stuff is lethal. Some of it, though, might be admissible even if he doesn't. For instance, if the defense tries to suggest that he believed that he was entitled to classify or to declassify stuff and then to to play some of these waffling comments, I think can be very helpful. I think one of the worst things he did this week was he said, I absolutely will testify at my trial that I did not request any suppression of the tapes at Mar-a-Lago. That is, to me, a clear violation of what the judge's orders is. It is absolutely a, a way of intimidating witnesses and of influencing the jury. So I think that was a horrible thing and that something needs to be done about it. You know, I'll take the opposite approach, maybe. And I think Trump's strategy is this. I think he doesn't care that these statements are going to be used against him in court. I think he is fighting his battle in the court of public opinion. His goal is to convince the electorate and maybe one holdout juror that he did nothing wrong. This is all a hoax and a witch hunt and politically motivated. And so getting out there and talking is not a legal strategy because, as you say, it's a terrible legal strategy. All this stuff can be used against him at a trial, but it is a political strategy. He is getting out there to try and poison the well, and if he can win the election, then um, before these cases go to trial, then perhaps he can dismiss them altogether, or he can try to poison the well and get some, you know, just one member of the jury to hang the jury. I think that's what he is trying to do. You know, what I think is so telling about that, Barb, is I think you're dead on the money. And it says it's a wake-up call strategy for America because it suggests that he will be so desperate to win this election. Because if he does not, right, there's a trial right on the other side of the election date. Maybe there's already been a conviction and there's an appeal he has to circumvent. And if he doesn't, that's it for him. And that means he will pull out all the stops and 2020 will look like it was a walk in the park. I just want to clarify what I was saying is that he might be trying to influence a potential juror by saying, I would testify to this. Now, it could be used against him when he doesn't testify to that. But I think it is really uh, on the edge of violating the orders about what he can and can't say while he's free on bail.
So moving away from Trump, there was legal news this week about immigration and specifically about the DACA policy. Let's start with the basics because there's been so much going on. I think our listeners can be forgiven if if they've missed this. Jill, do you want to talk a little bit about who the judge is, what he held, and what your opinion is of this ruling? Sure, would love to. Um, It's a distressing opinion. The judge is named Andrew Haven. He was appointed by George W. Bush um, after his appointment or his nomination by George H.W. Bush failed. Um, So he's been on the bench now since 2002. So he's a very experienced judge. And to show how long ago it was, it was still in a time of bipartisanship. He was approved by 97 to zero, which is something that will never happen these days. Um, This is the second time he has ruled that DACA is illegal. Uh, There was a suit filed by nine states, including Texas, which is where he is. He's now in Houston. And uh, he ruled it was illegal in that AG state lawsuit because there was no public notice given and the Administrative Procedures Act wasn't followed. And because he said the president who created DACA, which is um, President Obama, didn't have the authority to do it. But interestingly, he did not end the protection that DACA gives. He said the people who are protected by it now can continue to renew their protection and keep it while this is pending litigation. It's just that they can't, the the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies cannot grant additional DACAs. They can accept applications for DACA status. They cannot approve them and give people protection. And the protection is that you actually get to get a work permit and not be deported. It's also clear his second opinion has gone up and, um, well, not his, his first opinion went up to the appellate court and then was sent back to him to look at a rule change that the uh, Biden administration made And he said, no, that didn't do it. It doesn't change anything. It's really the same statute all over again. But the court made it clear that no action has to be taken from an immigration standpoint or a criminal standpoint against anyone as a result of this. It's clearly headed for the Supreme Court. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. It has to be decided there. But But, Barb, the case has some history. So what's the backdrop for the ruling, and what happens next? How does it affect DACA recipients while it's on its merry way up to visit with the nine justices in D.C.? Yes, this all has a very, very long history. Um, It it really is just a result of our collective failure to pass legislation addressing immigration. It goes all the way back to 2001, you know, this whole concept of the DREAMers, That is an acronym for a statute that was first introduced in 2001. Uh, DREAM was Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, the DREAM Act, first introduced in 2001. And, you know, it was just stalled in Congress for years. So finally in 2012, 11 years after it first gets introduced, President Obama uh, uses this executive order. Um, and says, uh, let's uh, let's do this deferred uh, action for ch- childhood arrivals or DACA. And so we'll say we're not going to enforce deportation as the executive branch against children who are brought to this country as minors. They had no choice, but they've lived in this country now all their lives. 
And in fact, since 2012, which is now another 11 years, right? So now we're 22 years later, we've got people who are, uh, you know, into their 30s who uh, arrived under this program. And the idea that, you know, a, a child who arrives here, you know, three years old or something and is now in their mid-20s or a teenager and is now in their 30s, and, and you're telling them, sorry, you know, I know you... Uh, you've been educated and you're working here and you're serving in all kinds of roles, uh, but you're just, you're going to have to go back to the country of your origin. Uh, you know, it, there's bipartisan support in the electorate for the DREAMers program. Um, so as you folks say, I think it is quite likely that the government will appeal this. It'll go up to the circuit court and to the court of appeals. But Joyce, to answer your question, in the meantime, there will not be any action. Um, as Jill said, the, the judge did not compel the government to begin deporting anybody. So I think while this case works its way through the courts, there will continue to be deferred action for all of the people who fall under the program. But it just keeps this, you know, uh, sword dangling over their heads and makes it very difficult for them to, you know, plan the most important matters in their lives, knowing that at some point the, the sword could fall and they might have to leave. You know, it really does. And something that always disturbed me, we, um, challenged some anti-immigration uh, laws in Alabama while I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And one of the most disturbing things was hearing the stories about kids who were dreamers, but who didn't know that they had been brought to this country illegally. And I heard this story more than once, many times more than once, kids who found out that they were not American citizens when they went to apply to college and found out that they couldn't, and a tearful parent had to tell them their origin story. And so wow. these smart, bright, American-raised kids who spoke perfect English and were in every way American suddenly couldn't go to college. You know, you have a right, regardless of your citizenship status, to go to K through 12 in the country under a case called Plyler versus Doe. But that cuts off once you graduate from high school. It always struck me as just being so counterproductive. If you want to have a strong, solid workforce here, why would you cut these people out of it? But, um, you know, Kim, all of these impacts, this is just one trial judge in Texas. So does his ruling really have importance? Is it limited to the district it's in? How do you see this playing out if the Supreme Court sides with him? Yeah, so long story short, and we've talked about this before, it does have a nationwide impact. And that is why challenges like this sort of can be an end run around uh, federal policy. You can do something called forum shopping, which is finding a judge who you think will be amenable to a challenge like this. They are often found in places like Texas. And uh, you launch it, and then one single judge can make a ruling that affects federal policy on a nationwide level. Now, as you pointed out, this particular ruling was done in at least somewhat of a cautious way, which, um, among other things, uh, anticipates the appeal that's coming um, and doesn't stop uh, dreamers who already uh, have renewals in place or applications in place. It can halt first-time applicants, which is problematic in itself, but it does throw a ton of uncertainty in this. I think the idea is that, look, the Supreme Court needs to decide this one way or another. 
and that even judges realize that. But in the meantime, the uncertainty with people who are making plans to go to school, making plans to go into the military, making plans to just move on with their lives in a way to be productive, um, you know, smart um, Americans that can help our economy and help innovation and and just live the American dream like all of us. It's really terrible that they are being pawns in this ongoing political battle. Um, and hopefully when it does get to the SCOTUS, and I've said many times, I don't trust them, but hopefully they do see the value and the point that you made about the fact that a lot of these are people who can who have never known themselves to be anything but American. And why aren't we letting them have that promise? It just seems like a no-brainer to me. Um, but if something as technical as, you know, an administrative law uh, can be used to keep them from that, man, that says a lot about our nation. You know, it really does. I mean, I share your growing distaste for the Supreme Court. Let me just up the ante here with my distaste for Congress, because the reason this is a problem, the reason President Obama had to create DACA, the reason the courts are ruling on it is because Congress refuses to deal with immigration. It's their job. Three branches of government, they make the laws. And they persistently refuse to do it, you know, because they are all um, so afraid of the politics and that their voters will reject them. If they take a stand one way or the other, it's just gridlock. I hate it. Hunter Biden was charged yesterday with three counts relating to his purchase of a firearm while illegally using drugs. He essentially confessed to the crime in his memoir, and the conduct occurred almost five years ago. First, Kim, can you remind us of the sort of complicated history here? There's a plea deal, then there wasn't, and now we see these charges. What what happened? How did this happen? Yes, we talked about this before. There was apparently a plea deal in case for Hunter Biden that dealt with both this, the gun charges that could come from his purchase of a gun while uh, his alleged purchase of a gun while a, a drug user and also involving taxes, his failure to pay taxes. Keep in mind, he is, I believe he is in the process of repaying or is close to repaying everything that he is alleged to not have paid. And usually in cases like that, it's rare that that results in actual criminal charges. It's people who refuse to acknowledge that they even owe taxes or, you know, people like Wesley Snipes who claim that taxes are unconstitutional or some crazy stuff like that, that um, are faced with actual criminal charges. Uh, But in this case, it it seemed like both the gun and and tax charges would be handled as as part of this plea deal at the very last minute when they were in court before a judge, it seemed that the parties did not have a meeting of the minds and that uh, prosecutors thought that they can continue investigating uh, Hunter Biden for other charges, perhaps FARA charges related to his dealings with Ukrainian officials or something. We don't really know for sure, but it all fell apart. It resulted in Hunter Biden not pleading guilty as what usually would happen in a plea deal. And therefore he got hit with indictments, um, federal indictments with respect to the gun charges. 
Yeah, I still don't understand why it fell apart either, because it seems like the government could have put language in there if it wanted to end this once and for all, or language in there making it clear they weren't ending it once and for all. And I can see why Hunter Biden might feel like, well, I I trust David Weiss and the special counsel not to do any more, but, you know, we may have a new administration in another year. And I think Hunter Biden's a little worried about what might happen in that new administration. So I think wanted a little more bulletproof language to indicate like, this is it, we're done, done. And the special counsel wouldn't give that language. So Joyce, I've seen an argument that the government is contractually bound to honor its commitment to give Hunter Biden pretrial diversion for the gun count, which they had agreed, you know, if he would sort of admit his guilt and stay clean for 18 months, then they would decline to charge him for these gun charges. And then when it fell apart, now they've they've filed it. And, and this argument is that, well, this is a breach of that agreement. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, I think that this is really interesting, Barb. We were talking about this earlier today. It's a little bit in the weeds, but essentially, you know, people will recall, as y'all have just been discussing, that there are two really separate proceedings here. One is the indictment on tax charges, and the, or rather it's an information because he's supposed to plead. And the other is this agreement for pretrial diversion on the gun charges. And pretrial diversion is a contract between a defendant and the prosecution in the normal case. It's just a straight-up contract saying we won't prosecute you if you complete your your period of diversion, get a job, stay clean, do everything we tell you to, live at the foot of the cross, and it's like it never happened. (laughs) Um, Sometimes that's called double secret probation, where I come from. (laughs) And so you've got these two separate things. And in Biden's case, I think what you're referring to is he may try to argue that everybody agreed on the pretrial diversion and it was a signed contract, so he wants to enforce it. Um, And there were two signatures on it, the prosecutions and Hunter Biden's. Where he may have a problem is that for for the pretrial diversion agreement to be fully accountable, particularly in this case where they wanted the judge involved, you needed the court in the mix. And that would have happened with the signature of the probation department um, on the agreement, and that was not placed there. So who knows how this plays out as a legal argument. Hunter Biden has got a really good lawyer in Abby Lowell. He's he's scrappy. He's not afraid to fight. He's a good technical lawyer. He reads things thoroughly and in detail. And this is the kind of argument that I could really see appealing to him. And here's the government's problem. They end up looking really petty in all of this, like they did it just because Hunter's last name happens to be Biden. You know, they were willing to give this up for pretrial diversion, and now suddenly they've made a federal case out of it. Um, If nothing else, the government will come out of it looking tarnished. Yeah, I don't know about this argument. Um, I I guess it depends on the language of the agreement, but as you said, Uh, One of the reasons the judge rejected it is the parties wanted her involved to determine whether there was a breach. I think, again, they don't trust a future Justice Department uh, in a Trump administration and wanted to Trump-proof it by including the judge as the arbiter of of whether there was a breach. And so I think that involvement means it's kind of a three-party contract. And so I don't know if it's it's enforceable. Jill, I've heard others 
saying that the filing of these charges is sort of a poor use of prosecutorial discretion. This is a charge that's rarely filed. Hunter Biden is being singled out because of his relationship with the president. What do you think about that argument about whether this is a, a, a righteous prosecution? I think it is an abuse of prosecutorial discretion that if his name was, you know, Hunter Smith, he would not ever be charged. These, it's not unheard of to bring these charges, but normally, unless the gun is used, and I believe there's no evidence that he even ever bought any ammunition for it. He had it for 11 days. He never used it. And then he gave it back. And so it isn't a case that would be brought. Similarly, the tax case, I believe he's paid back 100% of what he owed. And those cases don't go to trial and people don't go to jail for that. It's only if you refuse to pay. So I think that it's clear that the pressure that was put on Weiss when this, what was called by the Republicans, a sweetheart deal and People were accusing him of, you know, agreeing to this, and they were very critical of him. I think what happened in court, and I'm not usually the skeptic in the group. I'm usually the Pollyanna. But in this case, I really do believe that Weiss, at the very last minute, like, I can't take this pressure. I'm just going to get out of it by saying we didn't agree on this. Because I've negotiated not just plea agreements, I've negotiated corporate agreements. And it's... It's impossible to get this far along unless you're being deliberately ignorant of what the other side wants and why they would go into this agreement. So I just, I, I'm very suspicious of the motives and how it fell apart in the courtroom. And I think having fallen apart in the courtroom, these charges shouldn't be brought, that they should go back to finding a plea arrangement that satisfies everybody. And I think the first one was not a sweetheart deal. Again, he wouldn't be even prosecuted if his name wasn't Biden. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with you that this is a charge that gets filed very rarely. I, I can remember filing this charge, which is possession of a firearm while illegally using drugs um, only once in 20 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that is because the target was someone we believe to be very dangerous. And it was really the only charge we could find. You know, we sometimes refer to this as the Al Capone theory of prosecution. You know, Al Capone was the big gangster, bootlegger, you know, gangland murderer. And it was very difficult to prove all of that because of witnesses were afraid and, and all of that. But they could prove income tax evasion. So that's what they charged him with. In the same way, this is one of those kinds of charges that is sometimes used as a substitute for other more serious charges that are more difficult to prove or they're messy for some reason, but you can prove this one and it's kind of easy and we've got them uh, dead to rights. So we're just going to charge them with this thing. And I'm, I'm just always cognizant of, we don't know what we don't know. Is there more to this story than we don't know? Is this an Al Capone prosecution because they're trying to find an easy way out of, uh, of something more that's there? I don't know, but I do agree on its face. This strikes me as not the kind of offense uh, for which charges would ordinarily be filed. And in addition, Jill, to the fact that he only possessed it for 11 days, it's because his girlfriend, uh, who is, by the way, his dead brother's wife, 
that that's that that just further speaks to the place that Hunter Biden was in at the time. Um, took the gun from him and threw it in a dumpster because she was afraid he was going to use it to commit suicide. That is all in his memoir, and it is also the case that we only know about this gun because he wrote all about it in his memoir. I'm not, you know, nobody has the gun right now. I don't think they can prove that it's operable, which might be necessary for the possession charge. So it's uh, it, it's a head scratcher at this point. But I imagine we may learn more about this as time goes on. Um, Kim, of course, there are those on the other side of the political aisle who are arguing that these charges are too lenient. Um, do you think more charges are possible? And what do you think about those tax charges or FARA or something else? Um, I think for all the reasons you just stated, that the tax charges are not too lenient. These are not things that are, generally speaking, people who pay, even make a good faith effort to begin paying back unpaid taxes are not charged criminally. Keep in mind, too, the IRS is barely funded right now. So if they're prosecuting, they usually prosecute the worst of the worst right now. So this is not lenient treatment. The gun charge, as Barb said, is something that is rarely charged. I don't know what, if anything, we don't know what, if anything, the DOJ is looking into with respect to other things unrelated to the taxes or the gun charge, which would potentially be um something involving his business dealings that Republicans are trying to make a deal out of. We have not heard boo from the DOJ about that right now. So we don't know. It's possible. But so far, based on what we know, no, these are not lenient. These are not lenient at all. Yeah, uh, uh, Joyce, some, there's those IRS agents who've complained the special counsel was frustrating their efforts to hunt, investigate Hunter Biden. What do you make of that? Do you, do you think that there's... Uh, any substance to those complaints? Have you encountered that kind of disagreement with agents in your career? You know, I think it's fair game that even when agents are acting in good faith, sometimes they hear conversations differently than prosecutors do just because there are differences in position and power and equity. But here, there's an FBI agent, the FBI agent who's overseeing the investigation into Hunter Biden, the guy who runs the Baltimore field office. And he actually gave an interview last week where he disputed the so-called whistleblower's claims that Weiss was prevented from going forward as he saw fit. The agent, whose name is Tom Sobachinsky, pushed back against the idea that Weiss lacked the necessary authority he did. I thought this was interesting in the interview. He agreed with the whistleblowers that he thought Weiss moved way too slowly in making a charging decision, which, Jill, that sort of buttresses your instinct that Weiss was maybe kowtowing to political forces. Who knows? But the reality is that the agent um, who is the guy in the room who's listening to both sides, says it was his belief that Weiss had all the authority that he needed. He was just slow to use it. The most interesting thing I think the agent said in the transcript of the interview is, I never thought that anybody was there above David Weiss to say no. And I think that locks this one up. And David yeah. Weiss said he wasn't pressured to do nothing, that he had all the authority he needed. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, you know, I've been there. I bet, I bet all of us have. Sometimes, you know, agents who are working on cases just see a case differently than, than we do as prosecutors. And... I found oftentimes it were the agents who wanted to be very aggressive, but, you know, they didn't have the same kind of responsibility that prosecutors have about using discretion. And they're the one who has to stand up in court and ask a jury to return a, a verdict of guilty. So I think there is um, often a healthy give and take between prosecutors and agents 
over what's the best disposition of a case. And so the fact that they had differences of opinion doesn't surprise me or alarm me really in any way. Um, there's also the possibility that this case could really come back to bite DOJ. There is this movement now to challenge all of these gun statutes, right? And uh, the one that's going to the Supreme Court now is possession of a firearm while under a protective order by an intimate partner. And this one, this offense of possessing a firearm while illegally using drugs, I think, is subject to the same kind of challenge after the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin. Do you think there's danger there that this statute will be invalidated? Jill, what do you think? I, the minute I saw the opinion saying that it was um, unconstitutional to bar a person who is a alcoholic or a drug user from owning a gun, I thought, boy, is this court going to hate itself when Hunter Biden uses it to throw out the statute? Uh, because I'm sure they didn't have that in mind. But yes, I, I, I mean, I would be happy for all gun laws to be um, legal. But if they're going to hold this one illegal and unconstitutional, then I think that he has a pretty good chance uh, of showing that this is both going back to your earlier point, politically motivated and possibly barred by the plea deal agreement, but that it's an unconstitutional law. So I think from a political perspective, this was a, a, a mistake. And in terms of whether this will affect how people feel about the rule of law or the Justice Department, they're already so out of favor that I don't know that this will have any more impact on it. But I, I don't think it's going to hurt Joe Biden's campaign for president. I think he'll proceed to do very well. Yeah, I think in some ways, if Hunter Biden is, you know, charged or convicted of crimes, it's just evidence that the rule of law is 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 working, right? That uh, Justice Department is prosecuting people without fear or favor. Well, guys, now it's time for one of our favorite parts of the show, and that is where we answer your questions. We hope you'll continue to email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or thread or tweet or X us using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our threads and other feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. But for today, I'm going to start with a question for you, Kim, and that is from Sue in Rhode Island. Can individual states keep Trump off the 2024 ballot, or would a ruling to bar him, even if only in one state, force this issue to the Supreme Court? So, yeah. So essentially, as we mentioned last week, there is at least one uh, case out of, Cal- out of Colorado challenging uh, Trump's prospective inclusion on the ballot there. If even one state, if the secretary of state in one state keeps Trump off the ballot or puts Trump on the ballot and uh, that decision is challenged by an organization that has standing to do so or an individual that has standing to do so, that will start the 
um, challenge up the chain of appeals that will ultimately go before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court does not have to take up a challenge. One of the factors that goes into the Supreme Court deciding something is um, whether it creates a whether the issue has divided the circuits, which means that different circuit courts of appeals have come to different opinions, or it's a case of such exigency that the Supreme Court feels that it needs to step in. For example, Bush v. Gore, which was just out of Florida. Um, there was not a circuit split there. I think that it would fall into that category. So I think even if one Secretary of State decides to keep him off the ballot, I think it's almost certainly to be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, Yes. Great answer. And we'll now go to you, Joyce, with a question from Lulu. She says, I wasn't surprised to see Alabama appeal the panel's decision to appoint someone to draw the new map for them again. Is there some point that the courts can sanction the state? And if Alabama just refuses, then what is the enforcement option? Yeah, I think this is a great um, question because it's rare. I can't remember any other time where I've seen a state just completely flout the authority of the Supreme Court and say, mm, you know, we know what you ordered, but we're going to submit new maps for voting districts that don't comply with your order, Supreme Court. Um, this is a real opportunity for the courts to act like the rule of law still matters. And the three-judge panel that decided this case and that had to review Alabama's non-compliant maps really did that. There's a weird little quirk um, in this sort of an election appeal in a uh, case challenging um, voting districts and, and new maps that are drawn following the census. And it's decided not just by one district judge, like most cases, and it's also not decided by the 11th Circuit. It's decided by a three-judge panel that consists of two district judges and one 11th Circuit judge. And so, you know, the question sort of is, who do you appeal to? Well, it goes back um, straight up to the Supreme Court. There's no additional level in there. You've got the three-judge panel and then the Supreme Court. Alabama went back to the three-judge panel and they said no dice. They appointed a special master to draw the maps that the state refused to draw. And that, I think, Lulu, is the sanction. They've told, you know, the state, we're not fooling around. We are going to let this special master, this expert, draw the maps, and they will be Alabama's new maps. But here's the rub. Alabama has now asked the Supreme Court for a stay. No action on that yet. And if the Supreme Court gives them a stay while everything is being appealed, that would functionally mean that Alabama would use bad maps for another go-round because the dates by which those maps have to be finalized, that comes up early in Alabama. We're just a couple of months away, maybe not even two full months away from that. So this question of maps has to be decided quickly. Thanks, Joyce. Our last question goes to you, Barb, and it's from Terry. And she asks, why is there so much time between conviction and sentencing? For example, Peter Navarro convicted, uh, but his sentencing is not set until January. Why is it taking so long? This is an excellent question, Terry, and it is routine in federal cases. And that is because between the time of the conviction and the sentencing, there is a lot of investigative work that is done about the person. So the very next thing that happens after the sentencing is the person and their lawyer go and submit to an interview by a probation officer. 
And that probation officer will uh, ask a series of questions, but they don't just take those answers. They then go back and independently verify it. So things like, did this person have any abuse in their lives? Um, what was their education level? What is their work history like? Do they have any addictions? Have they had serious medical issues, serious mental health issues? They will explore all of that, and then they'll prepare a very detailed report for the judge to review for imposing sentence. It also includes the calculation of the sentencing guidelines. And then they have to build in time for that report to go to both lawyers who get a chance to review it and file objections. Those go to the court as well. And then many judges do what is called a sentencing counsel, which is they take those reports and they sit down with two other trial judges on their same bench. And they each bring a, a pack of these, you know, maybe three, four, five different sentencings that they have upcoming. And they share them with the other judges and get the other judges' takes on what would you think is a fair sentence in this case. Now, the judge, of course, is responsible for imposing the ultimate sentence, but they like to hear the feedback from other judges so they get a good feel for what's an appropriate sentence. And only then do they go back and have this hearing where there's a sentencing. So all of that work takes about three months. So typically uh, a sentencing gets set for three, four months down the road after the date of conviction. Thank you, Barb, for that great answer. And from all of us to all of you, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Calm, OneSkin, and Lomi. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really do help make this show happen. And go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. You can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. See you next week with another episode, hashtag sistersinlaw. So, Jill, what's your favorite hotel story? My favorite hotel story is when I was representing uh, members of the mob, as it was known back then. Wait, and what? Checked in Las wait, Vegas. Wait, we prosecuted members of the mob. You, you represented members of the mob? I, I was a prosecutor, but Married I was to the mob. The t- I, I was fine. They said I could do it. I got permission. And the room was a very special they? room. It had a hot tub in the middle. It had a mirrored ceiling. Oh and God. that was enough to make me go, I got to get out of here really fast. It was, <laughs> it was, and you don't want to take a DNA swab of that room. It was ooh, it was ooh. And my partner couldn't wait to get to the gaming tables. And I had never been in Las Vegas. I'd never gambled. And I was getting nauseous watching him lose $100 at a time. And it was like, oh, this is so awful. I went back to the room, which was awful too. So it was a terrible trip. And he forgot to, he forgot to arrange the depositions that we had flown there to do. <laughs> so the witnesses didn't show up. So it was a total waste. Jill started the deposition saying, yeah, that's a nice... Uh, oh, that's good. I did that's not a nice have a suit you were in there. No, be a shame I if didn't. something happened to it. I've never had a nickname, guys. If your name is Jill, everybody thinks it is a nickname. 
I've okay, never Watergate had one. girl. Well, you are the Watergate girl. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. That's that's as close as I'll ever get to having a nickname. What about one of those uh, one of those mafia nicknames? Right? Like, what are they like? Sunny the blank. They don't usually <laughs> like call knuckles, their lawyers by those Malone names, though. Or... <laughs> knuckles. That's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Johnny Two Fingers. Hey, I, do you I t- two sticks? <laughs> well, there was that Jilly Bean. Rick used to call me Jilly Bean. So I guess Jilly I did Bean have a nickname. Jilly Bean is cute. Jilly Bean, yes. 